0: So we're making our way to Exodus in chapter 1, on into chapter 2, and in verse 10. What I'd like to do this morning is to get a sense of where all of this is heading by begin reading in chapter 2, verse 1, and taking it down through verse 10. And now here we find these words. Now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. And she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Well, then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. And her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying and she felt sorry for him. But this is one of the Hebrew babies. And when the child grew older, she took him to be Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, well, I drew him out of the water. So what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking today at chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 2, verse 10. That was a highly oppressive time period politically. Wasn't it? And it seemed as though the culture of death was the norm. And what we need to find are some courageous women in this story who would present the alternative, a culture of life, and be willing to make the tough ethical decisions necessary to promote life in the culture of death and to do it in a way that would truly honor God. So this morning, if you're a mother, and you're looking at the various challenges and the tensions of raising child children in this culture, I think we've got a model here. We've got an example for you to be able to follow, but we're going to have to dig in, and we're going to have to draw out the principles that are here so that no matter what stage you are finding yourself in, parenting-wise, you're going to be able to look at this and say, well, God has given us as a pattern a model to be able to use to further his glory and his honor. But before we do that, we're going to take time to look to our Lord, of course, in prayer. So, Father, what we want to do now in these serious times is to look seriously into your word, to be able to understand better in a very practical way how to be able to apply these principles, these truths to the times in which we live Changeless Truths for Changing Times. We need to be incredibly aware of the changing times and diagnose them well. But we need to be committed to the changeless truths of your word and apply it well. Now, Father, you know the needs that are here. And on a day like today, there are going to be various emotions. There are going to be some who have just brought children into this world. There are going to be others who have just lost their mothers this past year. There have been births and there have been deaths. There are those that are trying to train their children and raise them in the ways of the Lord. There are those, Father, who have now released their grip and the child is an adult on own. And all we can do now is to serve as mentors and resource people and trust you, Father, to continue to do a great work within that heart. So we're, we're across the spectrum in terms of our experiences this morning in these services. But what we need is that constant. We need that one who is there for us at our point of need. We need Jesus. So, Father, warm these hearts of ours and engage these minds of ours as once again we come here to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was preparing to come to Wisconsin years ago, Dennis Rainey and Barbara Rainey, they sent a book to me and it had a lot to do with the whole area of family life. And Barbara tells a particular story that has always stood out in my mind with the way in which a mother relates to her children. A couple built a home on the banks of a small pond at the headwaters of a creek in Florida, not far from the Gulf of Mexico. Their 12-year-old son, Michael, loved to snorkel in the two-acre pond. And one evening, at, as twilight fell, he and his two cousins, Kelly and Jill, went for a swim just after dinner. Kelly decided to come ashore, but the other two youngsters remained behind, continuing to enjoy the wonders of snorkeling in the clear waters of the pond. She goes on to write, oblivious to any danger, they were unaware that a huge alligator was bearing down upon them. Neighbors spotted the beast and tried to distract it with shouting and clapping, which alerted Jill, who managed to make it to shore. But Michael, head underwater, could hear nothing as he floated peacefully, peering at the rocks below. The alligator lunged for Michael's head as its jaws snapped shut its teeth, slashed a six-inch wound in his scalp and ripped the snorkel mask from his face. Miraculously, the boy's head came free and he began swimming for shore as fast as the huge flippers on his feet could move him. Only momentarily diverted, the alligator spotted the boy and was after him again. By this time, his mother had heard all the screaming and came running to the water's edge where she saw her son only 20 feet away in the race against death. He was swimming as fast as he could, but the alligator was gaining on him every second. The mother reached out to grasp her son's hand just as the beast opened its huge jaws, snapped them shut on the boy's left leg. What followed was a grim tug of war between the 100-pound mother and the 400-pound, 11-foot alligator. Clutching her boy's hand in a death grip, she pulled with superhuman strength, and suddenly,
1: unaccountably, the beast let go. Perhaps the 18-inch rubber
0: flipper on the boy's foot was the cause. No one's sure. But the frantic mother dragged her son out of the water, up the bank to safety, as the alligator sank back into the pond with what what is this called? a, A disappointed look on his face. Three months later, Michael, his wounds completely healed, showed a visitor the spot where the attack took place. There were few outward signs of his brush with death. The scar on his scalp was now covered by his hair, and his left leg, broken by the force of the gator's jaws, had mended. Scars on his calf and ankle were covered by his socks. Proudly, however, he showed the visitor three small scars on the back of his right hand, inflicted not by the alligator, but by his mother's fingernails. She had literally drawn blood when she pulled him from the jaws of certain death. And when I came across that story, I thought about the courageous women of Exodus chapter
1: 1. And I'm thinking about you all today. I want to talk about courageous women this morning. The women
0: that are here and the women that raised us. We want to understand them. What makes them tick? Why are they the way they are? What motivates them? What drives them to be who they are and what they want to be for God's glory? And what I want to do with you right now is to draw out three significant challenges that I think all of us are going to be able to embrace in these verses. It's just we're looking for a way to honor mothers today on this Mother's Day. Three significant challenges, no matter if your mother is still with you or no longer, that I think are going to equip us to be more effective in honoring our Lord. And the first is found in verse 1 down to verse 7, and we're going to phrase it like this. Number one, to seek to understand, seek to understand the generational influences upon your mother. Look for ways by which you are going to be able to track the prior generations leading up to your mother and ask what were those influences upon her life. You're going to get a better understanding as to why you are the way you are. And furthermore, you're going to get a greater understanding as to how God was working through those generations leading you to the point with where you are at today. So I want you to go back in time with me now, and I want you to start tracking prior generations. If you are unaware of the influences that took place because maybe you were adopted, then I want you at least to be praying, God, shed some light as I try to understand my DNA so that I'll be better equipped to be able to equip the next generation with your grace, your goodness, your glory. Because as Moses now would write at the beginning of verse 1, these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon. He would have paused with his next name, wouldn't he? Levi. Levi. Because Moses was of the line of Levi. Then you pick up the pace, only to slow again with the next one, Judah. Because out of Judah would come the one who would be the promised Messiah we know as Jesus. Then there's Reuben and Simeon. You see that. Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. And then you pause again, because most likely Moses did this. As he now pens out these thoughts, the descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Can't you picture Moses underlining this next phrase?
1: Joseph was already in Egypt. Seek to understand the generational
0: influences upon your mother. Now, Paul's there, because Moses has already been involved in writing the book of Genesis by the inspiration of the Spirit. And he has tracked generation by generation as to how God had led his people to his point where they are now in Egypt. Why, Joseph's brothers had betrayed him, lied about him, betrayed him to such a degree that he was sent off, it off to Egypt and told his father, Jacob, that he had been put to death by wild animal. What astounds us is that God in his providence raised Joseph within that land to be the means of protection, so that when the Jewish people, in a time period of famine, were looking where to go to sustain themselves, they would head to Egypt, where now Joseph was prime minister. Had those people died off, there'd be no Messiah. Because Messiah would come of the line of Judah, and Judah was still in Canaan, where famine was to be found. And so now God has sent Joseph ahead, and allowed him to go through such hardships to be positioned, so that the rest of
1: the people could come and join. Pause now. Pause now. Ever been deceived? Ever gone through a time period of
0: intense challenge? And you're wondering where God is? What God had done was that He used the faithlessness of Joseph's brothers to reveal the faithfulness of God's nature. He preserved the line by positioning Joseph even as a result of betrayal in Egypt so that Joseph could rise up to become prime minister. And now the brothers come into Egypt and the line is preserved and God is using Joseph to minister to the brothers who had been faithless to him. Have you ever been challenged to be faithful to one who is faithless? Now think about the generation that have gone before your mother and ask now, how was God operative and what was God doing both in the good times and the bad times, the ups and the downs of prior generations that get us to the point with where we are at right now in our own personal experiences because you will not understand the present until you understand the root system of the past. As Moses now
1: reflects upon that phrase, Joseph was already in Egypt. We call this God's providence.
0: Pro video, video Latin. Which means that not merely is God watching you. It means that God is watching out over you. Get the word video, in providence. So now, God is watching out over the generations leading to Moses, and God has been watching out over the generations leading to you. So it's critically important, if you're going to honor your mother, that you take time to understand the root system. So you're better able to understand why she is or why she was the way she is or the way she was. Part of understanding is getting to the point where we understand the whys of life. I'm sitting with uh, multiple generations in my office of women. There's tension between them. The appointment which took place years and years ago. My eyes scan the faces of the various individuals there. I lean forward with a cup of coffee in my hand and look at the mother and I I say, would you be willing to tell your story? Tell us about your mother, how she influenced you, and why you are the way you are, help us better understand what's going on in your life. It gets quiet. She recounts prior generations, and then her own upbringing, and still finally I turn and I look, and there's tears rolling down people's cheeks, and one of the younger ones looks at her and said, I never knew.
1: Now I understand. One of the great
0: gifts on Mother's Day is to be able to produce a capacity to be able to say, I understand you. Which tells her that you've took time to understand. She understood you because she watched you from infancy onwards, Lord willing. You didn't have that opportunity. So that means you're going to have to do your own investigative homework But part of honoring mother is the willingness to roll up sleeves to better understand the whys behind the what's and the how's of her own personal experience. Moses is reflecting now. He's getting it. He's grasping the whys, and so should we. But there's still more to these opening verses because in verse 6, Now, Joseph and all his brothers and all that, and I've underlined this, generation died. Again, seek to understand the generational influences upon your mother. That generation has died, but God hasn't. Because in verse 7, the Israelites were fruitful and multiplied greatly and became exceedingly numerous so that the land was filled you see the land was filled with them and now what your mind does is that you're tracking with Moses because he was the one inspired by God to write the book of Genesis as well as Exodus Leviticus Numbers and Deuteronomy and in Genesis 1 verse 28 didn't God make a promise to Adam with regards to being fruitful and multiply And then you go to Noah in Genesis 8 and verse 17, and God makes a promise that they're to be fruitful and multiply. And then it's repeated to Abraham in Genesis 17, and Isaac in Genesis 26, to Jacob in chapter 28, all within Genesis. And now what Moses is doing here is that he's combining God's providence with God's promise. And he's saying God has been faithful even when prior generations may have been faithless. And I can can trust this kind of God even when the culture seems to be so godless. God is faithful in the midst of times of faithlessness. And I've thought about that when I occasionally read and reread the story of Augustine. One of the great, great leaders in church history, who in his early days was running from God, a Jonah complex, he didn't want anything to do with the faith that her, his mother had and the God that his mother trusted. So he told her eventually he was going to go to Italy to teach. And Monica, by that point, was a widow, continued to pray for her son's salvation. She was so convinced that if only he would have stayed put in their region, he would have come to saving faith. But now he was leaving for Italy, and that's not the place at that stage of life in that time period you wanted your your children to go. But you see, God's there. And when he gets to Italy... There's a man by the name of Ambrose who's a pastor who gets to know Augustine and eventually Augustine comes to saving faith in Jesus Christ. In Monica, his mother, died in 387 at the age of 56. And in Augustine's confessions, he spoke of his mother. Now gone from my sight who for years had wept over me,
1: that I might live in your sight. Oh, my God. Mom's a burden for a particular one in your family? And you're
0: saying, in essence, not Italy. You've got your own concept of what an Italy might be for that child. And you're saying, Lord, I really don't want to see that, that child in that setting, in that position, in that gathering. Do you realize that God is all present? And that God is in the Italy's of your life? And the Italy's of your child's life? And can you understand the connection you see between God's providence and God's promise? And are you willing to embrace it? And are you willing to be a student to understand the generational influences that that led up to your mother so that you can honor her in a way that not merely you can say, I know her, but I understand why she is the way she is. Or you're able to say if she's passed on, I've done my homework and I understand why she was the way she was so that you honor her memory. Critically important. It brings a sense of biblical health to the family unit and to the person's soul. So we're looking at this now, and we're examining this, and Moses is is doing his homework. The first challenge, seek to understand the generational influences upon your mother. Verses 1 through 5, God's providence. God's providential influence upon her. Verse 6 and 7, God's promise. God's promissory note regarding her. Now, as you do that, you and I are on this quest because we want to become biblically wise in this difficult culture you and I find ourselves in. So now, here's the second challenge that emerges, beginning in verse 8 down through the end of chapter 1. The number two, you and I are challenged to seek to understand the critical issues confronting your mother. The critical issues confronting your mother in these verses now, mothers in particular we're going to be confronted with life and death situations, and they're going to unfold for us verse by verse. Now we pick it up in verse 8. Then a new king, who did not know about Joseph, came to power in Egypt. Now, This new king was part, evidently, of a people group known as the Hyksos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, who overran militarily the prior regime. And so they would not have known the story of Joseph and his brothers.
1: So there is a lack of memory here. And generally I find that one of the big
0: challenges in people groups and in family connectedness
1: is the sustaining of the memory. But here we have a situation now, politically,
0: where there is a new king who did not know about Joseph. He doesn't know about the God of Joseph. He does not know about God's grace to Joseph and how God preserved God's people by positioning Joseph in that land so that God's people could grow and multiply in keeping with God's promise. What I want you to see unfold now is the political landscape and try to transport it into 2013. Look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become too numerous for us. Isn't that what God had planned all along? In those promises again and again in the book of Genesis? Be fruitful and multiply? In other words, now politically, he's going to try to position himself
1: against God's promise. Try to do that one. Come, we must deal
0: shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now, here is the political challenge of the hour for him. He needs the Jewish people economically. They are the source of productiveness in the land. But he is simultaneously threatened by them militarily because he is concerned that they will ally themselves with another regime because the Hyksos have come and taken over and they feel extremely vulnerable. So what is the leader going to do? He's going to implement now oppressive policies against God's people. So beginning in verse 11, you and I are informed, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. They built Pithom and Ramses as store cities for Pharaoh, those who were in places for both provision and military preparation. But now what I want you to see here is what happens when you try to go against the will of God and fight against the promise of God. Whether it be politically or personally, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. I can imagine Moses pausing now and smiling as he thinks about how the government was trying to stifle biblical faith. The greater the heat, the greater the expansion. Here it comes. And so now, here we find that this leader is oppressing, but they are multiplying, they are spreading. The Egyptians came to dread the Israelites, so what do they do? They working them all the more, ruthlessly. A very intense word in the Hebrew. They made their lives bitter. Now, when you and I take a Passover meal together, Next year, we're going to have a Seder right before Easter. Part of the Seder is partaking of what are known as the bitter herbs. The bitter herbs, the word bitter, comes from the very same word that's used here to describe the experience within that land. They made their lives bitter with hard labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields and all their hard labor. The Egyptians used them ruthlessly. And there is a painting on a tomb in Egypt right now that visualizes this very scene. Archaeological evidence to back up the historical realities. This was the first organized persecution in verse 8, down through verse 14. Now, the people may be saying to themselves, where's God? And perhaps right now we might be saying something similar. But notice how God in his sovereign plan is allowing for this to occur, and his permissive will and his directive will are not conflict with one another, but working together for his glory. Look what hits. Verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and poor Semitic names. When you help the Hebrew women in childbirth,
1: observe them on the delivery stool. If it's a boy, kill him. If it's a girl, let her live. Don't underestimate what's going on here. What happened
0: in the Gospel of Matthew? Herod tried to have the baby boys put to death. What is the rationale behind all this? The evil one is trying to cut off the avenue by which Messiah will come into this world. By killing off the baby boys, the girls then will intermarry with the Egyptians. The line is eliminated. But God has made a promise in Genesis 3 12, 15, 17, 22, and onwards. And when God's promise is resisted, bear in mind, God's promise is still to be fulfilled. So now there's a parallel here Old Testament, New Testament. But what we find are intensely grieving mother's hearts because they see the culture of death colliding with their own spiritual culture of life moms you feel that today but notice this was not merely permissive from the government this is directive from the government if it's a boy kill him if it's a girl let her live And the Pharaoh, in essence, is giving this edict to Hebrews to do this to fellow Hebrews. As Moses reflects on these words. Look what comes next. The midwives, however, feared God. In other words, they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. They put their trust not in their government, but in their God. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. In other words, a biblical basis here for civil disobedience. They let the boys
1: live. Courageous women. Now we've got a new challenge. What do you say to the king? The king of Egypt
0: summons the midwives and asks them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Look at the answer. The midwives answered, Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I can almost picture them winking at each other as they say this. Smiling. But now you and I have got to ask ourselves some questions about the ethics of this story. Because we're told in verse 20, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. Continuous fulfillment of what God promised in Genesis. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Question.
1: Did God bless the midwives for lying? No. The answer is no. God blessed the midwives for fearing God, not for lying.
0: A few recommendations here in the whole issue of ethical decision making. One. God is the God of truth, not the God of lie. He expects the means and the ends to be consistent in the area of integrity. Number two, because of Pharaoh's edict regarding matters of death, we've got to understand that God would have called the midwives then to give sufficient information,
1: but not exhaustive information. Sufficient information for
0: the sake of the king. But because he had so compromised his soul, he was no longer in a position, by God's grace, to hear exhaustive information. He's given sufficient information, but not exhaustive, so that these women were able to preserve life. Remember the garden of Eden, how lie and death are joined together in that temptation story. The blessing falls upon the midwives not because of the lie, but because of the fact that they feared God, and their faith was revealed through their fear of the Lord rather than their fear of the government. And so these kinds of narrative passages are descriptive, not prescriptive. They tell us what happened. They're not endorsing all the methods regarding why and how it happened. And God blesses them for their faith, not for their lie, which is the very same approach used in understanding Rahab in Joshua chapter 2. So, what we do here now is we understand the integrity that God calls upon the men and the women and the families and the culture in which He's placed us in to be able to live for him and serve him. Now, once you've thought this through, and I want you, if you're a mother this morning in particular, to ask, what are the ethical issues? What are the big challenges that I and my children are facing? What am I modeling? What do they observe when they see me facing the big, tough decisions of life? All of us are being challenged now to seek to understand this woman, the generational influences upon her, verses 1 through 7, the critical issues confronting her, verse 18 through 22. Now thirdly, here's our third challenge. Seek to understand the personal faith of your mother, chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. Now we put a little giddy up into this study. Beginning in verse 1, you and I are informed, now a man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman. This is the culture they're in. She became pregnant, gave birth to a son, and I can feel the angst in their life. How are we going to handle this crisis? How do we remain faithful when the government is so faithless? When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him, same Hebrew words which are used to describe Noah and the ark in Genesis, coated it with tar pitch, then placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, which is fascinating to me because the river Nile was
1: viewed as one of the gods of life in the Egyptian pantheon of gods. So now as Moses writes this, he sees
0: the ironies here, he sees this powerful story unfolding, and he's allowing for the faith of his mother to percolate. As he ponders the the initial entrance into this world, she placed the child in it, put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile, and his sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. She delivers the first of three significant lessons to mothers here that in verse 1 through verse 4, through faith, the mother is called to
1: protect her child, which she does. But now there's more to the story. In verse 5, Pharaoh's
0: daughter went down to the Nile to bathe. This was most likely some form of religious ceremonial act some form of religious cleansing in the waters of life. Don't miss the ironies. Her attendants are walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds, sent her slave girl to get it. She opened it, saw the baby. You can almost feel the tension now as Miriam is looking on at her baby brother. He's crying. She felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Now a deep swallow because the child has been identified with the ethnic group. What will be the reaction?
1: God's at work. Well, then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew
0: women to nurse the baby for you? This has been well rehearsed. Well rehearsed. You see now both God's sovereignty and human responsibility converging here at this river. Yes, go, she answered, and the girl went, Got who? The baby's mother. You see the smile on Moses' face now as he's gotten to this second chapter? He's thinking about his mom's faith. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this baby and nurse him for me and I'll pay you. Imagine that, moms, you get paid for nurturing your child.
1: So the woman took the baby and nursed him. There's a second
0: lesson. We said the first was that through faith you're called to protect your child in verse 1-4. through The second lesson. Through faith, you're called to nurture this child. In verse 5 through 9, irony of ironies, verse 10. When the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. And now the very political center that was so positioned and determined to put Hebrew boys to death is raising this baby boy who is Hebrew
1: to assure them of life. But there is your third lesson. Through faith, the mother is called to release
0: her child, and she had to release Moses into the custody of the king who was determined to have Hebrew baby boys put to death. Sometimes I'm asked, if you could pick one book to serve as a commentary on the entire Old Testament, what book would you choose?
1: I smile and say the book of Hebrews. Because look at what Hebrews chapter 11
0: tells us. That now appears on the screen. Verse 23. By faith Moses parents. Plural. Which means that
1: the father was involved. Hid him for three months after he was born.
0: Because they saw he was no ordinary child. I love what comes next. They were not afraid of the king's edict. Because the best way to counteract fear is faith. And there you see the personal faith of your mother. So you see the challenges we face? The generational influences? The critical issues? The personal faith? Take some time to understand her. Study her. Learn her. If she's still alive, spend time talking with her about these three significant areas. If she passed away, ask God to reveal insights regarding these areas and the way in which you can take these insights and impact still the next generation and all the other people that God has placed you among in order to be able to impact them for God's glory.
1: This lady is tougher than an alligator, you know. And there's a boy with marks to prove it. Let's stand together.
0: And Father, we praise you and thank you on this Mother's Day. A broad-based survey of these verses. But I pray some practical application from these verses. So, Father, we want to affirm the mothers. I pray for fathers that they will find ways to affirm those who are mothers as well. I pray that the children with sleeves rolled up now will find various ways to equip themselves to understand their mothers and the generations of women prior to them so that they're better equipped to value the God who's been at work, continues to work, so they can serve you wholeheartedly. So thank you, Father. And as we seek to honor mothers, most significantly, we've sought now to honor you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Happy Mother's Day.